Well, for those of you who are visiting with us this week, uh, whether it's EAA or, or otherwise, or maybe those of you who have kind of maybe been a little bit in and out this summer, uh, we have been going through our series this summer simply called Prophet, Priest, and King. Uh, we've been looking at who Jesus is as our prophet, priest, and king, and not just that he has these titles, right? It's not just like a title like mother or brother or coach or classmate, something we might say, oh, this person is this in, in relation to me. But we've been looking at what Jesus has done for us as our prophet, priest, and king, and what he continues to do for us as our prophet, priest, and king. And the question that I want all of us to wrestle with this morning, we can ask ourselves this personally, is how am I relating to Jesus today? Is he Lord and Savior? Is he my prophet, priest, and king? Or is he just another figure in the biblical narrative that feels like someone far off that I can't relate to? Maybe like Moses or Elijah or David or Peter. Specifically, we must ask ourselves, what does it mean that Jesus is our priest? Two weeks ago, we looked at Exodus chapter 29. That's the ordination of the, the priests in Israel, Aaron and his sons. There's all these descriptions of the garments that they wore, all the descriptions of the sacrifices that they offered. And as we saw, especially in Exodus chapter 28 and 29, there is a tremendous attention to detail in those chapters. All these things that they have to do just right. But it all culminated, you'll remember, in the promise at the end of chapter 29 that God would be their God and that he would and that they would be his people. Last week then, Chris walked us through Leviticus chapter 16, looking at the Day of Atonement, where once a year the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies with the blood of a goat, and he would offer the blood sacrifice for his own sins and for the sins of the people. So the goat would die in their place as a substitutionary sacrifice that would cover the sins of the people kind of symbolically for an entire year. As we've obviously talked about, and as our, our whole goal in this is in looking at those Old Testament passages, is that all of these things point us forward to Jesus. We look at the prophets in the Old Testament, the priests and the kings in the Old Testament. We're looking at them to see how they point us to Jesus. So that's what we're going to do today as we're informed by those studies of the Old Testament. We're going to turn now to the new to consider what Jesus has done for us and what he continues to do for us as our great high priest. As we've also mentioned several times, this series that we're doing this summer is really preparing us for the book of Hebrews that we're going to go through in the fall. Now, Hebrews is the only place in the New Testament where Jesus is specifically referred to as our priest. There's so much there in the book of Hebrews, uh, we can't even begin to really scratch the surface of it, but we're going to mainly look at this one passage here in chapter 9, and we're going to consider some other passages as well, just kind of briefly, as we unpack some of the main parts of our Shorter Catechism question number 25. So I would invite you to stand, please, for the reading of God's holy word, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 28, please pay attention to the reading of God's word. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, 
Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. As always, when we approach God's word or we look to unpack and understand one of our catechism questions, we should ask, why is this important? Or what's at stake here? And the answer to the question, why is this important, is because we need to become better acquainted with our Savior. We talk around around here a lot about head, heart, and hands, right? Holistically knowing Christ. Knowing with our head, right? Knowing him. Loving him with our hearts. Serving him with our hands. And those first two things are inextricably tied together, the head and the heart. As we learn and as we grow and as our affections grow, then the third one of those, the the hands, it's the fruit of those first two and those first two working together. I think the truth for us is that we are so easily captivated by unworthy substitutes. 
things that capture our minds, things that capture the affections of our hearts, and they draw us away from the triune God. We need to constantly remind ourselves as we gather together weekly for corporate worship, as we gather monthly for our summer conversations this summer, as we gather throughout the week in fellowship in one another's homes, meeting together, and certainly individually as we seek the Lord in our own lives, we need to be reminded of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. So as we consider Jesus as our priest this morning, I believe this is the office that we need to pay the closest attention to because I believe the implications for our salvation are the greatest. Now hear me very carefully here. I'm not pitting Jesus as prophet and king against Jesus as priest. We talk about his threefold office. He's not sometimes prophet, sometimes priest, and sometimes king. He's always prophet, priest, and king. However, there are certain things that Jesus has done and continues to do as priest that are much, that have very strong implications for our salvation, as I said. So let's consider our catechism question again. You can look at your worship guide there. Question 25, how doth Christ execute the office of a priest? The answer is that Christ executeth the office of a priest in his once offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. As we attempt to look more closely at this answer and at our passage in Hebrews 9, I want us to think about this in terms of two major categories. So if you're taking notes this morning, write these down. The first category is the finality of Jesus' work as priest. The finality of Jesus' work as priest. The second category is the continuity of Jesus' work as priest. So finality and continuity. First, finality. As we look at the answer here to our catechism question, the first word that should jump out at us is the word once. Okay, The first line of the answer is Christ executed the office of a priest, which is just a repeat of the question, right? This is a very helpful little tool for memorizing these questions. Most of the questions in some form, or most of the answers in some form repeat the question. So it's, it's helpful to, to memorize them. So, so that is pretty obvious there. But the, the first word that really jumps out that we should, we should underline and, and circle or bold, however you want to do it when we're looking at this, is the word once. Jesus did something once. And this is really important for us. What is it that he did? Well, there's a two-part answer that we see in the answer. He once offered up himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice. That's the first part. The second part is that he reconciled us to God. Now, we'll come back to these two things, but first let's look at the onceness of Jesus' sacrificial death. We see this in our passage in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. It says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Now, there is a comparison here between the work of the high priest in the Old Testament 
especially on the Day of Atonement, which we again, we saw last week in Leviticus 16, and Christ who entered the greater and more perfect tent. We're going to see as we go through Hebrews, Jesus is not bound to a physical location, and he's not bound to some routine sacrifice, right, that the Old Testament priests had to do. Verse 12, it says, He entered once for all, with his own blood, and that he secured an eternal redemption. There's a finality here that we see in this statement. One commentator puts the contrast between the Old Testament high priest and Christ like this. He explains the Old Testament high priest as one who has a finite annual onceness. So there's a finite annual onceness to his sacrifice. Okay, It happens every year on the same day. And it's a, it's a once-a-year sacrifice, but it's, it's finite. Christ's sacrifice, on the other hand, is an infinite onceness without any repetition. So a finite annual onceness versus an infinite onceness without any repetition. Jesus died once for all. I think a helpful way, a few translations do this, that can sound a little confusing. It, we would say once and for all, right? Finally, he died once and for all. So there's a finality and a definitiveness to it. We say that his death actually accomplished something. It didn't just make salvation possible. It says in verse 12 that he secured an eternal redemption. Well, how did he do this? It tells us by offering up himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice. Jesus spoke very clearly of this offering up of himself in John chapter 10 when he told the crowds that he is the good shepherd. He said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, speaking obviously about the Gentiles. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Listen. He says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice. The author of Hebrews explains this self-sacrificing in verse 14. Notice in verse 13, there was the purpose, there was a purpose for the Old Testament sacrifices. It was for the purification of the flesh. There was a temporary effect there. But notice the words in verse 14. How much more? We could title this whole sermon series, How Much More? That's our focus here. How much greater of a prophet is Jesus than Moses? How much greater of a high priest is he than Aaron? How much greater of a king is he than David? How much more is he able, going to our catechism questions here, how much more is he able to reveal by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation as our prophet, how much more is he able to once offer up himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God and make continual intercession for us as our priest 
And how much more is he able to subdue us to himself, to rule and defend us, and to restrain and conquer all his and our enemies as our king? That's a pretty complete resume right there. And it's what everybody needs. It's what we're all longing for. For someone to act decisively and definitively on our behalf. To tell us that we are loved and we are cared for and that in the end everything is going to be okay. No matter how hard our lives are or have been in this world, that there is hope. There's hope beyond the grave. There is so much confusion at so many levels in our world right now. People are running all over the place. People are trying to uncover old truths or they're trying to discover new truths. Yesterday I was looking on Twitter to find something that I had posted about uh, some things going on at RTS, the seminary I attended, and I was sharing with some guys yesterday. So I I went back to this, this tweet and in my feed, something showed up from someone that I follow. He was responding to another tweet uh, from this guy who was a former professing Christian musician, a very well-known musician who has since denied the faith and and basically has become a universalist. And here's what this, this former Christian musician tweeted out. He says, Jesus was Christ. Buddha was Christ. Muhammad was Christ. Christ is a word for the capital U, universe, seeing itself, which I have no idea what that means. Then he says, you are Christ. We are the body of Christ. I'm not even going to attempt to analyze that because it really makes no sense for a whole bunch of different reasons. And it was hilarious seeing all the comments and him responding to the comments like, thank you for the pushback. Like, okay, but anyways. But the one thing that this gets at, I think, what he's saying here is crazy as Christ is a word for the universe seeing itself. The one thing that this gets at is that there is a longing for some universal truth that holds everything and everyone together, right? Like this guy wants some concept of Christ to be true for everyone in the world. He wants this universality. And I think that's a good impulse, right? Because there is a reality of us all being tied together. It's, all, it's that we're all dead in Adam, right? We're born in sin and we're under the wrath of God and we deserve hell for our sin unless God's justice is satisfied. The Bible makes that clear from Genesis chapter 3 to Revelation chapter 21. If you want to talk about a universal truth, there it is, right? We're all dead in sin and we all need Christ. That's why Jesus' offering up of himself as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice is so important. And we're not going to attempt to unpack Hebrews 9, verses 15 to 22. There is a lot there. Uh, We will eventually get into that uh, this fall. But uh, it's basically talking about the shedding of blood under the Old Testament sacrificial system. And notice verse 22. It says, Under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. No doubt a verse that, if you've read your Bible much, most of us have have memorized that or can kind of repeat that, right? Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins, something we're very familiar with. 
Verses 23 and 24 then talk about Jesus entering not into holy places made with hands, but into heaven itself. Now look with me at verses 25 and 26. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places once every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all, again, that same language, at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus has put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, but not universally. Again, we, that means once and for all. It doesn't mean once for all universally. Look at verse 27 and 28. Just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, right, not all, he will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save who? Those who are eagerly waiting for him. This isn't talking, there's no universal salvation here. When it says once for all, it's not talking about a universal salvation. And there is, there is no universal salvation atonement. Jesus didn't shed his blood for all of humanity, and now he's sitting in heaven at the right hand of the Father with his fingers crossed, just hoping maybe that people will recognize it and receive him, right? Jesus died for his sheep. He laid down his life for those whom the Father has given to him. The cross didn't just make salvation possible for a whole bunch of people. It was actually the place where lost sinners were saved. Chris recommended last week the little booklet we have out on the table on the atonement. If you want to just dip your feet in a little bit on that topic, you can do that in reading this. There's volumes obviously written about this idea of Christ's particular redemption. Uh, if If you want to talk more about that, I'd be happy to talk about it. And there's a lot more that can be said. I really don't have time to, to go down that road. I wish I could say more. But let's go now to the second part of the finality of Jesus' work as our priest. The second part is that he reconciled us to God. Now, this reconciliation is not directly addressed here in our passage in Hebrews 9. But it really is, again, it's the whole emphasis of Genesis 3 to Revelation 21. The question is, how can lost sinners, how can those separated from God, dead in our trespasses and sins, how can we be made right with God? How can we be restored to a relationship that is not defined by rebellion and hostility, but by perfect obedience and peace? That is what it means to be reconciled. I think it's hard to fathom this because we don't ever really experience this type of reconciliation in our lives, in our human relationships. Think about, you know, the older you are, the more opportunities you've obviously had for this in your life. But think about maybe a fractured relationship that you've had, whether it was with a family member or a coworker, um, and a relationship that has been restored by the grace of God has been restored to some level of of peace. Uh, There's been maybe... There's been some confession of sin. There's been an asking of forgiveness. There's been a genuine granting of forgiveness in that relationship. 
But in this life, there is still memory of that past hurt, right? We can't, you can't like undo that. You can't erase those things from your memory. And even though you might not legitimately might not hold that against that person, obviously as fallen people, there's still the reality that they could do that same thing to you again, right? Like there's no guarantee that they're not going to revert to their old ways or they're not going to sin against you again. And I think it's easy for us to take those hurts and those fears and those anxieties and to project them onto God and to say, oh, that must be how God looks at us. That must be how God deals with us. But it's not. If you are in Christ, that is not how your relationship with your heavenly father is. And we know this because he has told us so in his word. Paul speaks in Romans 5, 8 through 11 of God showing his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That we were enemies of God but have now been reconciled to God by the death of his son. And in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 21, that anyone, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That we've been reconciled to God and we are now ambassadors who are sent out to implore others to be reconciled to God. And then verse 21, which Luther called the great exchange. It says, for our sake, don't miss those three words at the beginning of 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what Jesus has done for us as our great high priest. This is that great exchange. Our sin is placed on him, and we get his righteousness. We stand before the Father clothed in the righteousness of Christ, forgiven, justified. God doesn't say, well, I remember that one thing you did 10 years ago, And I'm kind of worried that you might fall back into that sin. So like our reconciliation is kind of, you know, kind of on edge here. No, not at all. That's not how it works. If you're in Christ, you're forgiven and you're fully reconciled to God. Your past sins are forgotten. And God does not hold those things against you. He looks at you. He sees the righteousness of Christ credited to your account. That is the beauty of the gospel. That is the only way that we can come and stand before God. It's objective and it's final and it was accomplished once and for all in history. And we are the beneficiaries of that. Praise God. So that's the finality. We've seen the finality of what Christ has done for us as our priest. Now let's look at the continuity. The continuity of Jesus' work as priest. We see this in the last clause of the answer to our catechism question, which is in making continual intercession for us. So Christ executes the office of a priest in making continual intercession for us. Well, what exactly does that mean? Christ's intercession for us is twofold. First, it's a continual reminder of of the satisfaction of his sacrifice. Look at 924. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Christ ascended into heaven and was seated at the right hand of the Father. We're going to be talking about that tonight for our Apostles' Creed study. 
And he appears right now at this moment in the presence of God on our behalf. So when we say that there is a continual reminder, it's not that God forgets, right? God doesn't wake up every morning and have to say, oh yeah, that's right. Here's Jesus seated at my right hand, right? Like, oh yeah, that's right. He died for the people, died for my, my people. I can't be angry at them today. But it's, it's so it's not that God, God forgets, but it's that Jesus is there representing us continually before the Father as a continual reminder of what he has done for us. So his once for all sacrifice, it is the divine stamp of approval that will never fade away. It's the first way that he intercedes. The second way that Jesus intercedes for us is in hearing our prayers. Hebrews 7.25 says that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. 1 John 2.1 says that if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. This relationship that we have with Jesus is a dynamic relationship is not static or still. We don't just pray a sinner's prayer and then say, oh, I'm good, right? Me and God are good. You probably had those conversations with people, right? Like, oh, me and God are good. <laughs> like, every time I hear that, I'm like, yeah, <laughs> right. But that's not how it works. We don't just say like, oh, yeah, you know, I got that stamp of approval 20 years ago or 40 years ago, and, and now I'm just doing my own thing. But I'm good. Like, me and God are good. We need to be reminded of the dynamic nature of our relationship with Jesus. Because the reality is that the world and the flesh and the devil are coming for us every moment of every single day. Do you remember what Jesus said to Peter when he foretold his denial? Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But, what did he say? I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Friend, if you are in Christ today, then this is true for you as well. Jesus is praying for you. He's representing you before the Father and you can come to his throne with boldness and confidence, knowing that your sins are forgiven and that you have been reconciled to God. And it's, if that's not yet true in your life, then I would urge you, be reconciled to God through Christ. He is your only hope in this life and in the life to come. I want to close with a little word from my friend Hermie. That's what I like to call him, Herman Bavink. I don't know if he would, if he was alive today, if he would appreciate me calling him Hermie. But uh, Herman Bavink, uh, the great Dutch theologian. If you're looking for a, a nice little uh, study, uh, challenging but super devotional, uh, the wonderful works of God by Bavink. It's in a chapter called The Work of Christ in His Exaltation. It talks about Christ's intercession for us. I'm going to close with this and then I'll pray. 
He says, over against all the charges which the law, Satan, and our own hearts bring against us, he takes upon himself our defense. He comes to our aid in all our temptations. He has pity for all our weaknesses. He purifies our consciences. He perfectly sanctifies and saves all those who pass through him to God. He prepares a place for them in the Father's house where there are many mansions and where there is room for many. And he preserves for them the heavenly inheritance. Therefore, the believers have nothing to fear. They may boldly go to the throne of grace and have themselves received from Christ in heaven the spirit of adoption as children by whom they cry, Abba, Father, and by whom the love of God is shed abroad in their hearts. Just as Christ is their intercessor with the Father in heaven, so the Holy Spirit is the Father's intercessor in their hearts. An important tenet of our Christian confession is this, therefore, that we have such a high priest who is set at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Hence, we do not need a priest, a sacrifice, an altar, or a temple here on earth any longer. Amen. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, we can't even begin to fathom your great love for us. That while we were dead in sin, while we were enemies while we were rebels under the wrath of God, that you loved us so much that you sent your son to die in our place, that he might take our sin that we deserve to pay the penalty for, that he might take it upon himself on the cross, and that we might have his righteousness credited to our account, that we might be able to stand before you clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ, that we might hear the words forgiven, reconciled, redeemed, that we might hear well done, good and faithful servant, not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done for us. Thank you that he lived and died as our priest and that he continues to live as our priest at your right hand as a seal, as a token of our redemption that he continues to intercede for us. That just as he prayed for Peter, that he would not be given over to Satan, that he prays for us, that he guards us, that he keeps us. God, thank you for this great redemption that we have. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for our Savior. We pray these things in his mighty name. Amen.